It is your money. I'm Susie Jones, steering the ship. We have with us on our newsline Bruce Elmer, founder of Wealth Enhancement Group and financial advisor. Hello, Bruce. Hello, Susie Jones. How are you? I'm wonderful. How are you? I am also wonderful. I do have to admit, though, I am. Uh, it's October one, and I am ready for October weather. I've had I've had enough of hot, humid days. You know, I just heard Bruce. I just heard Al read the dew point. Holy smokes. That's a humongo dew point, right? You know, it's one thing when the sun is out in the daytime, but I had to go out for something last night well after dark, and I walked out, and it almost felt tropical. It was stunning (laughs) how hot to me it still felt after the sun went down. So I can certainly understand why they didn't want to take chances uh, with the Twin Cities Marathon, although that's really unfortunate. But yeah, bummer. But you know, again, all in all, I'm pretty good. Uh, as you probably know, Peg is taking a, a well-deserved day off today. And uh, Susie, we thought we would, you know, we we, we kind of do this quarterly. Um, when we get to, we're, we're starting the the fourth and last quarter of the year. Yep. And we're going to look uh, look ahead a little bit and kind of coach people on things that we usually coach clients on to look at doing and their personal finance in the fourth quarter. Um, but then before we do that, I also like to take a, a quick look back at what has happened so far this year. So, All right, let's do it. Thank you. So the stock market, to the surprise of many, and I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm not trying to be um, arrogant here or boastful, not to the surprise of me. At the end of last year, 2022 was a really bad year. Not just in the stock market. I think the S&P was down uh, like 12% last year. So stocks were down, and that's not uncommon. That happens roughly one-fourth of the time. The stock market, if you look at, at his, uh, history, it goes up about three-fourths of the time. It goes down about one-fourth. So that's not rare. The stock market goes down. What made 2022 even tougher, though, was that stocks and bonds normally have what we call negative correlation or converse relationship to each other, meaning if if stocks do well, then bonds do poorly and vice versa. But in 2022, stocks had a tough year. Bonds also had a tough year. Real estate had a tough year. There was really the best place to go in 2022 and make a return was cash. And that doesn't happen very often where cash gets an investor their highest return. So based in part on how bad last year was, I thought this year would be up, but not robustly up, but but up. Uh, we'd make back some of what we lost last year, but probably not everything. And so far, and of course, anything can happen in the last quarter, but so far through three quarters, that is what, what has happened. And, and a lot of pundits and a lot of uh, supposed experts thought we were going to have another negative year. And I was never in that camp personally. I was cautiously optimistic and not that I'm right all the time. I'm not. But uh, you're not. You're right. So far. <laughs> what? You're not right yeah. all the time, Bruce. I'm not. I wish I could say I've had a thousand, but but I don't. But I will say that over the years, I've been doing this over 40 years. Um, my batting average over 40 years is pretty good. But nobody gets a hit every time. But uh, so far this year, again, the market has been moderately good. It's still volatile. I think volatility is something that you know is the new normal, and there's a lot of reasons why that's true. But uh, this year has been pretty good so far. Now, what do we think will happen in the last quarter? 
Um, one of the things that were of concern, we had a temporary, temporary solution late last night, literally in the 11th hour. Everybody was worried about a government shutdown. But Congress and, and the Senate, uh, by, by, by the way, overwhelming margins, I don't remember the exact vote, but I think in the Senate it was 80-something to, to you know, teens, and uh, it was also overwhelming majority in Congress, and the president signed a, a spending bill. Uh, we've got enough money now to run the government till November 17th, and we'll probably go through this all over again. But we avoided a shutdown, uh, which is good news for, for everybody. And I just wanted to comment, you know, we, we get a lot of emails and, and whatnot, you know, during the week from listeners. And I did get one. Uh, I, I don't think I talked about this on Your Money last week, but I, I gave an interview or a couple of interviews during the week and about the government shutdown. And my basic answer was, well, let's hope it doesn't happen, because if it does, that's obviously not a good thing. It's bad for everybody. But if we look at the last government shutdown, which happened in December of 18 and bled into January of 19, it lasted 34 days. The, the impact macroeconomically on GDP and the stock market was not significant. And I talked about that in interviews this week, and somebody took me to task and said, how can you be so flippant? How can you be so insensitive? Don't you know that people don't get paid? You know, and I, I just want to say globally, I, I think sometimes I'm guilty of not communicating as effectively as I could. I'm not insensitive to individual people, anything that we're talking about economically. But my comments are always based on the macroeconomic, what it means to the majority of people. And so the answer that I gave that the last shutdown was not particularly impactful on the macroeconomic things that we look at is true and is the correct answer. And I'm not sure how bad a shutdown would have been globally if it would have happened. But, boy, I, I sure made somebody upset during the week, and I hope they're listening because I never want to be insensitive to the plight of any one individual person, but we're always talking about the macroeconomics. So um, we avoided the shutdown. I, I believe the fourth quarter uh, will be up, but you never know in the short term um, what will happen. I think GDP has been good. I th you know, Again, you can always find negative things or things to fret about or worry about or reasons to be negative. But when I look at everything in, in, its, in, its, in its entirety, I, I personally think there's more reasons for optimism than there is for pe pessimism. So we'll see what happens in this, uh, in this last quarter. Um, things that people can look at doing in the fourth quarter. Um, when we look at the month of October, Susie, yep. uh, and, and it's, like, it's like we have all these acronyms or these special days and special months for everything now. But October is actually financial planning month. Um, so I would, you know, I would like to say that as we head into the fourth quarter, it's probably a good time, you know, to review certain things. And also in October is when a lot of announcements come out about how things are going to look next year. This uh, mid-October is usually when the IRS announces uh, changes to tax brackets or changes their, if they change the, the maximum contribution, say, to 401k and other types of retirement uh, plans. Um, Social Security cost of living adjustment usually comes out in October, which by the way, I'll make a quick mention now. Sometime in October, we haven't set the date yet, but sometime after that announcement, we will have 
Rhonda Whitenack on from the Social Security Administration. Frequent listeners of the show have probably heard Rhonda on before. She's so good. She's so knowledgeable. But beyond that, sometimes you can be knowledgeable but not know how to explain what you know to the, to, to the regular person, regular listener. Rhonda's so good at explaining it in a way that we all can understand it. And I always learn and gain and benefit from my conversations with Rhonda. So that show's coming up sometime within the next few weeks. But in terms of some of the anticipated changes that we think are going to happen for next year, um, we think the standard deduction is going to rise. Um, I think right now it's 27000 and change for a married couple filing jointly. We think that's going to go up to almost 30000 29900 is the number that I'm seeing. Retirement plans, um, the maximum contribution for a traditional IRA or Roth IRA, we think will go up from, to 7000 from 6500 this year. Maximum contribution to a 401k or other types of employer-sponsored employer uh, defined contribution plans, we think will rise from 22500 to 23000 in, in next year in 2024. And beginning in 2026, the so-called catch-up provision, Susie and listeners, for people 50 and older in, in terms of being able to put more into their company-sponsored retirement plan. Um, we, th we think that that, that catch-up provision starting in 2026 is going to be mandated to be directed to Roth. In other words, after-tax dollars, not pre-tax dollars. That's, that's the, the reason the government would do that is that they want to be able to collect more in taxes. They don't want people doing tax-deductible plans They'd rather see you do a Roth, but the good news is that's not necessarily a bad thing for us as investors either. One of the things that we coach people all the time on and that, we, that I see when, when people come to see me for the first time is most people, now obviously not everyone, but most people, in my opinion, have too much in the, in the tax-deferred drawer in their lives and not enough in the tax advantage. So this, this law might literally be the classic win-win, good for the government, but also can be a good thing for uh, individual investors as well. So those are some of the, some of the changes that we expect we're going to hear about. Um, again, this, this is, uh, usually happens in October. Okay. Um, moving on from October, if we look ahead to the month of November, um, November, again, every month now has some sort of sponsor or title. November is actually National Long-Term Care Awareness Month. And so, Susie, I always tell people, Peg and I always tell people, um, in fact, Peg has a great line. I'm going to steal Peg's line since she's not here. Everybody needs to do long-term care planning. Now, when we start talking about long-term care planning, I think uh, the, the listener, or whether it's in a one-on-one -on -one conversation or here on a radio program, I think the listener sometimes thinks, oh, you're talking about long-term care insurance. I'm not necessarily talking about insurance, but I'm going to come back to that. But, but not everybody should have long-term care insurance. But everybody should do long-term care planning. Uh, and Peg always says, if your plan is to have your oldest adult child take care of you, make sure you tell them. Don't, don't forget to mention it to them if that's your plan. you got to talk about it. But here are, the, here are the, the statistics, and I know sometimes people will say, well, the statistics don't apply to anyone. The average family has 2.5 children, but nobody has a half a child. But statistically, if you get to age 65, the, there's a 70% chance that at some point in your life, you're going to spend some time 
in some sort of a long-term care facility, a nursing home, senior assisted living, maybe it's uh, in-home health care or adult day care, but some form of what we would call long-term care. And how long you'll need that care could vary dramatically. Sometimes it's days, sometimes you can't take care of yourself coming out of a, a surgery or, or an accident or something, so it's very temporary. Other times it, it can be decades, but the average need is 28 months. So there's a 70% chance that you're gonna use it someday if you reach age 65, and the average length of time that you'll need it is 28 months, and the average cost, Susie and listeners, now again, there's a lot of options and they all come with a different price tag, but the average cost, if you look at it in aggregate, I think is over 7,500 bucks a month, something like 90,000, over $90,000 a year. Wow. So if I just take that, yeah, right? So if I just take that simple number, 7,500 a month average, and multiply that by the average number of months, 28 months, that's $210,000 out of my pocket. So again, I'm not trying to scare people, but that's, that's the statistical average that we have to try to plan for or be aware of. Now, I mentioned long-term care insurance, and again, it is not the appropriate solution for everyone. It may be cost prohibitive. It may be that you don't qualify if you have some sort of pre-existing condition, or it may be that your pre-existing condition you can qualify, but the, again, the premium becomes um, not, not affordable. Um, and, and, and some people maybe don't have significant enough assets that they're worried about protecting that the cost is a waste of money and they don't need it. So not everybody needs long-term care insurance. I personally own it. I always volunteer this. Um, I own it. I know Peg owns it. And I think I've had mine for about 12 years, if I remember correctly. And, and the reason I chose to buy it, it wasn't because I didn't think I would run out of money if I had an extended healthcare issue and had to be in some sort of facility for a long time. I've been blessed financially and I can self-insure that risk and I'm never gonna run out of money, but I might have a lot less to leave to my kids. And legacy planning, leaving as much as I can to loved ones is a high priority for me. So I chose to get insurance and transfer the risk from myself to a large multi-billion dollar insurance company. Now, one of the arguments against doing that, or two arguments, number one, it might be cost prohibitive. Not everybody can afford that cost. For me, my premium is less than $5,000 a year, and I'm not gonna say that's cheap. I know for a lot of people, that's too much money. They can't afford to spend it. But I will tell you that, you know, I've had the policy for I think 12 years now, so that's about 60,000 out of pocket. Susie, I'm never gonna live long enough that I'm gonna spend $210,000 in premium. So it was, a, it was a calculated bet that I made that this is good, you know, I'm, I'm gonna take a finite palatable cost for me to protect against the potential overwhelmingly high cost that I can't predict in the future. Um, and and that, was a, that was the choice I made. And again, it's not the right choice for everybody. The other thing I hear a lot about people not wanting to, to get long-term care insurance is, what if I, I spend all this money and I die healthy and I never use it, I never file a claim? And I get why people would say that, but the irony to me is I kind of scratch my head and go, but that same person would never, so, would never say, gosh, I'm so frustrated and upset. 
I never had a tornado or a fire or anything destroy my home. I didn't get to file a claim on my homeowner's insurance. What a ripoff. So insurance is always, whether it's life insurance, health insurance, long-term care insurance, car insurance, homeowner's insurance, it's a predetermined cost that presumably you can afford to protect yourself against the risk of an overwhelmingly high cost that you can't afford. That's what insurance is. And so for some people, long-term care is the right solution, not for everybody, but again, not everybody needs to insure that risk, but everybody needs to plan for it. And November is long-term care uh, planning month. And then finally, December, holiday season, um, a lot of spiritual things going on. It's for a lot of people, it's a time of giving. Um, and so we talk a lot about the efficiency of making your, of being philanthropic and giving to things near and dear to your heart. It used to be, Susie, that a lot of people would you know, write a check out and if they itemize their deductions, that charitable deduction could be included and they would get a tax deduction for the gift to charity. Well, as the tax laws have changed and we've greatly increased the size of the standard deduction, very few people, especially retired people, itemize anymore. They take the standard deduction. So their gifts to charity, and again, they, you don't do it just for the tax deduction. You do it because you're, you're a good person and you want to contribute and you want to help and it feels good to you and it's near and dear to your heart. Those, those things are all still true. But if you can get a deduction, why not? You know, if it's good for you personally and it's good for the charity or charities that you're giving to. Well, most people don't get that deduction anymore because they don't itemize. So two ways that I just want to mention in terms of charitable giving. Number one, if you wanted to put a lot into a particular investment, it's called the donor advised fund, you can possibly get that charitable contribution to a big enough number in a single year that you then can actually itemize and get a benefit for that gift to charity. When you put the money into the donor advised fund, it doesn't immediately go to a charity or charities. You'll make that decision later in terms of the charities you want it to go to. But just by contributing to the fund, you get the tax deduction. So I have several clients that put a lot of money into a donor advised fund in a single year to get the deduction, and then they'll decide later how they're gonna carve that up and what charities are gonna get the money. The other thing that we have a lot of our clients do, clients that are um, 73 or older and are uh, having to take required minimum distributions from their tax deferred plans, um, traditional IRAs, traditional 401ks, you can actually take part of or all of your required minimum, minimum distribution, RMD, and direct that to a charity. It's called a qualified charitable deduction. And that's the other way that you can still get a tax break. So you can still be philanthropic and you can still get some sort of tax benefit from your generosity. It just takes more planning. Uh, it's more complicated than it used to be, but you can still do it. Um, and then before we go to break, I also wanted to mention, I also got a question, question last week in an email, and I, I'm going I'm to paraphrase, and, and also the, the emailer didn't give me permission to use his name. We'll just call him my name. We'll just call him Bruce. But basically, um, he, he was frustrated that I talked too much. Oh, no. <laughs> he basically said, <laughs> I know, right? I, I don't know why you picked on me. I think Peg and I talk about the same. But he was basically frustrated that, you know, I kept saying 
we're going to get to listeners' questions, um, and then and then we didn't, and he didn't get a chance to ask his question. Um, so his question was um, pertaining to. Um, Oh gosh, now I can't find it. I started oh, down this road and okay. I lost the question. Well, we've got. I, I may have to come back to it in the, in the second half. And also, we're coming up against the break, so probably we should start to tell people. Okay. Because we've already got some text questions coming in on our text line. So to remind people, if you're listening right now, it is six five one four six one nine two two six six five one four six one nine two two six. We have questions already coming in. Some questions relating exactly to what's going on in the world. In fact, we know that starting, I think it is Monday, that you have to start paying your student loans again. There was a question about that. Yeah. Uh, there's also yep. a question about discuss the importance, they say, of saving or accumulating cash to protect yourself in the event of a layoff or unpaid furlough. Even though we've already reached a tentative stopgap measure, still good idea to talk about emergency funds. So we're going to take a break here, but we invite you to be a part of the program at 651-461-9226. Remember, you can call that line or you can text that line. It is your money on WCCO. Welcome back. It is your money. I'm Susie Jones, and we have with us, as always, every Sunday morning, Bruce Helmer, the founder of the Wealth Enhancement Group, also a financial advisor. And we are taking your calls and texts at 651-461-9226. And we have a caller, Bruce. Let's get to Bob, who wants to jump in with a call, with a question or a comment. Hello, Bob. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. Um. I'm on the road, so I, I hope this is, is, is hearable. But, Bruce, early, just a little bit ago, you mentioned something about you have a lot of clients that are, uh, you believe, I think, over-invested in pre-tax IRAs versus uh, after-tax Roth IRAs. Uh, I'll hang up and listen, but I'm just curious why you think that may be an issue. Hey, Bob, thanks for listening, and thanks for calling in with a question. And uh, drive safe, um, and you can listen and keep your eyes on the road. So it's a it's a really good question, Bob. Thank you. So again, um, a lot. I think the the reason that most people have most of their money in pre tax plans or tax deferred plans is because that's what most company retirement plans have been up until recent years. Those plans have been around a lot longer than the Roth IRA or the or what we would call a, a tax advantage plan. The Roth, I think, came into being in the late 90s as part of the 1997 Taxpayers Relief Act. So traditional IRAs, traditional 401ks go back a lot more years. So I'm, and I'm not suggesting, Bob and listeners and Susie, that participating in your traditional 401k is a bad idea. Think of all the good things. It's a good idea. Number one, it's easy to participate, right? I've always said that by just having the money withheld from your paycheck, you're getting money into the plan. Many people, in fact, probably most people, if they have the personal obligation to writing out a check to their plan twice a month for that dollar amount, a lot of people would find reasons not to do it. So when it's automatically withheld from your paycheck, it's very user-friendly, and it makes sure that you're getting, you're making the investment. Additionally, a lot of plans will have a matching contribution from the employer. That's good. Additionally, you get a tax deduction for your contribution 
the year that you make that contribution, so it lowers your taxes in that tax year. That's good. And you don't get any 1099s on the gains. While the money's in that plan, it grows without taxes. But th those are all good things. But what I So I like participating in those plans, but not to the extent that you don't do anything else or do very little. I also want people to have money in taxable accounts, and I also want them to try to have money in tax-advantaged accounts. Now, you said, why is that? So let me give you an example. Let's say that the vast majority of your money is in your company retirement plan, and now you retire, and you're going to reward yourself. You want to go out and buy a new car. And the car is $50,000, and you're like, well, i got a million dollars in my 401K. I'm certainly not going to pay anybody interest and, and add that expense to the purchase of this vehicle. I'm just going to take a withdrawal from my 401k and pay cash. But you can't take any money out of that plan now without paying ordinary income taxes on that withdrawal. So to net $50,000, you might have to take out like $70,000 to net fifty dollars after you pay the tax. Well, you wouldn't have to do that if you had $50,000 in a Roth IRA or, or a tax advantage plan. And you wouldn't even have to do that if you had money in a taxable plan because on a taxable plan, Bob and listeners, you get a 1099 on your earnings whether you spend the money or not. So spending the money really doesn't increase your taxes. So when you retire, sometimes it's good to spend tax-deferred money. You can say, okay, look, um, I'm in a 12% tax bracket, and I can take 10000 out of my tax-deferred plan before my income is going to bump into the bottom of the 22% bracket. So the income I need this year, the first $10,000, i will take out of the tax-deferred plan. And if that's all I need, then maybe that's the only withdrawal I make. But if I say I need $20,000, the first ten will come out of the tax-deferred plan, but I don't want to take more than that because it will be at $0.22 cents on the dollar. So my, my second $10,000, i will either take out of a tax-advantage plan or a taxable plan. But if I don't have $10,000 in a tax-advantage plan or a taxable plan, that option isn't available to me. So we, we always, everybody in our industry and everybody in the financial world talks about diversification, and they're, they're thinking in terms of asset allocation or asset classes. And we do that too, but we also believe in diversification from a tax standpoint. Uh, investments, uh, Bob, can only be treated one of three ways from a tax standpoint, either fully and immediately taxable, tax-deferred or delayed, like traditional IRA, traditional uh, 401k, or tax advantage, where maybe you don't pay any taxes at all on the gain. And as I think you and most of our listeners know, in the case of a Roth, as long as that money is in there for five years or until age 59 and a half, whichever is longer, you don't have to pay any taxes on that gain. So all things being equal, Avoiding the tax altogether is better than just delaying the tax, and delaying the tax is better than paying it right away. But the thing is, all things are not equal. So a lot of people, when they come to see me for the first time, have very little money in taxable accounts. And when I ask them why, they're like, well, I don't like that because whatever my return on investment is, I have to net that down by the tax consequence because I get a 1099 and i got to pay taxes on it. And that's true. And that is a disadvantage. But there's also several advantages. Number one, it's liquid. So when we talk about tax-deferred plans or tax-advantaged, IRAs, 401ks, Roths, we essentially are tying that money up until age 59 and a half. 
And if you're if you're listening today and you're 30 like my daughter or 35 or 40 years old, there's something to be said for having money liquid to buy houses, to do home improvements, to pay for weddings, to buy cars. So taxable accounts are usually more liquid than tax deferred or tax advantaged. Additionally, on taxable accounts, you might be able to pay taxes on your gains at a lower rate. They're eligible for something called long-term capital gains rates, which can be significantly lower than ordinary income tax rates. On a, on a withdrawal from an IRA, you're always going to pay at ordinary income tax rates. On taxable accounts, you might get long-term capital gains. And then finally, and we've talked about this on the show before, but it bears repeating, on a taxable account under current tax law, I may still be eligible for something called a step-up in basis, meaning if I buy a stock and I pay a dollar a share to buy it, and I hold that stock for several years, and the company does really well, and the price of that stock appreciates to $100, if I go sell that stock at $100, I have to pay the taxes for $99 a share uh, a gain. I'm, I'm going to pay long-term capital gains on that $99 a share that I made. I don't mind paying taxes because I made money. Paying taxes because you made money is a good thing. But if I never need that stock, I never sell that stock, I don't, I don't need the money, and I pass that on to my kids, their basis is not the dollar that mine is. Their basis steps up to the $100 of the value of that stock on the day that I die. So if they inherit at $100 and they sell it at $100, they don't pay any taxes on all those years of $99 that I, of the gain that I had. They get a step up in basis. And you can't do that on tax deferred and tax advantage plans. So the very idea that a lot of people have that taxable accounts are always a bad idea simply isn't true. Again, what I'm looking for, what I help my clients build, Bob and listeners and Susie, is tax diversification. We want some exposure to taxable, we want some exposure to tax deferred, and we want some in tax advantaged. Again, I'm not against these tax deferred plans. They're a good idea for a lot of reasons. I'm only against them to the extent that you don't do anything else or very little else. We want you to diversify, not only from an asset allocation standpoint, but from a tax standpoint. Susie? 651-461-9226. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Your Money on WCCO, and we are happy to have you with us as part of the show. And as always, Bruce, we love listener calls, don't we? And we love listener questions. So we will ask a couple of different questions of you. This person says, could you explain the definition and difference between tax advantage versus tax taxable plans. Yeah, so I, I'll, I'll go a little deeper, but that's a little bit what I just did in response to Bob. So taxable accounts would be any account, any investment that you have, a bank account, a bank CD, a money market. Maybe you have a brokerage account with stocks and bonds or mutual funds, but it's not inside of any kind of IRA or tax-sheltered vehicle or any kind of Roth. Tax advantaged, by definition to us, means we maybe can avoid the taxes altogether. So in addition to Roth IRA and Roth 401k, other examples of investments where you might, have to, might not have to pay any taxes would be double tax exempt um, um, bonds. You, you can get state and federal bonds that might be double tax exempt and you don't have to pay any taxes on the gain, either state or federal tax. 
Sometimes you can avoid taxes with uh, cash value or equity withdrawals from permanent life insurance. But probably the biggest chunk of tax advantage uh, money is going to be Roth IRA or Roth 401k. And by tax advantage, I simply mean that you can maybe avoid taxes altogether. And I've said on previous shows, we talked about strategies versus investments. Whatever the investment is, whatever the return on investment is, if I have it in a taxable account, whatever that return is, it's going to get netted down by the tax I have to pay on the money that I make. Or if I have that same exact investment in a tax-deferred account, I'm going to get the same gross return, but on the tax-deferred account, I get to delay or defer the taxes on the gain till some year in the future. I don't get a 1099 every year. I get a 1099 when I actually take a withdrawal. But in the tax-advantaged, again, if it's a Roth, as long as it's been in there at least five years or until age 59 and a half, whichever is greater, I don't have to pay any taxes at all on the gain. And so, again, it's very um, advantageous if you're retired and you've got a, a certain amount of money in an account that you can spend for lifestyle and you don't have to pay taxes on it. You know, that, that's a really powerful thing to have when you're retired. Now, it is true that on the Roths, you don't get a deduction for the contribution like you do on a traditional. So if you just compared, and I know the question, Susie, was more taxable versus tax advantage, but now I'm going to compare tax deferred to tax advantage. On a tax deferred, you get a deduction for the contribution. So if I put a dollar in, in a plan, I might save a quarter in taxes that year. So if you compared tax deferred to tax advantage where you don't get a deduction after just one year, you would say tax deferred's better. I got a deduction. I paid less in taxes. I'm ahead of the game. My return on investment was the same, the gross return, because it's the same investment, but one of them I got a deduction and one, one of them I didn't. But now you fast forward into the future when you're going to actually spend that money, and on the tax deferred strategy or the tax deferred investment, you pay the taxes when you take the withdrawal, and the taxes at that time are probably going to be more than the quarter you saved in the beginning when you got that deduction. So I always tell people for tax planning, you don't just look at the current tax year. Sometimes, in fact, oftentimes, we, we want to pay a little bit more now if it'll help us pay a lot less later, so we're paying net less over our lifetime. And that's, that's our goal, and that's what we do as financial advisors. We don't just look at the current year. We try to do projections and see what things are going to look like in the future, and that leads us sometimes to a strategy to get this tax diversification of doing Roth conversions. We might take money out of our traditional IRA, pay the tax, and move the net amount or, or move the amount that we withdraw from the IRA into the uh, tax-advantaged Roth IRA. So, uh, again, it can be very confusing if you don't deal with this stuff every day. But at the end of the day, remember, there's only three ways investments can be treated. They're either taxable right away, or they're tax-deferred or delayed, or you avoid the taxes altogether. That's the only three options we have, and my goal is for you to have some money in, in all of them. Hey, Susie, before we take another text, I, I do want to get back to, uh, so he doesn't yell at me two weeks in a row for talking too much. So the, the, the emailer, and we'll call him Bruce, he, he sent in an email, and uh, I'm paraphrasing because first he took me to school for over-talking. Then he said, my question has to do with robo-accounts that automatically invest and rebalance based on the investor's certain preferences and risk criteria. 
I've had an intelligent account for quite a while, but one of my concerns is the amount of money invested in cash. So what he's talking about, these, these smart accounts or these robo-accounts, they use algorithms and AI to, to, to manage a portfolio, and it's probably you know, okay for some people. Obviously, what's missing here, though, is, is the human element, and it could be that based on their algorithms, the amount of cash that they want to have in the account is more cash than Bruce thinks he should have. Now, I think cash is important for everybody to have some safe money, some rainy day money, some emergency money with no risk of no risk on your principal. But how much you have should is going to vary for everybody. We're all different. We're all we're snowflakes. No two people are exactly alike. And I don't know that the that this robo investing takes that individual personality into account. Plus, the other problem with these, um, these, these algorithms and these, these uh, robo-investors, they never reach out to ask if things have changed. So even if you do one of these and, the, and the, the portfolio is appropriate at first and you're okay with the amount of cash in there, you're happy with the asset allocation, if you go through a life change, if you get a promotion, if you get some windfall or something negative happens, you have an expense you hadn't counted on, they're not going to automatically change that asset allocation or reach out to you. You have to be proactive and go in and say, I need to change my asset allocation. I've had some changes in my life. Again, with our clients, we meet for reviews at least once a year, many clients every six months, and we find out in a timely manner about changes they're going through in their life, and we will make appropriate changes not only to their portfolio and asset allocation, but also there might be other changes they need to make in terms of their planning to make sure that they're, they're still on pace. So the technology, the AI, the, the, the algorithms, the, 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 you know, the world is changing because of technology. I'm well aware of that, even though I'm not technologically proficient. And these robo-advisors are probably um, appropriate for some people. But I don't think I'm ever going to be out of, job, out of a job because I think there's always going to be people Oh, uh, my client, people that want the personal experience, want the proactive approach, want somebody to reach out, hold their hand, talk them off the ledge when they're nervous, encourage them when things are going well, all those things that we get out of a personal relationship. So anyway, that was, uh, we're calling him Bruce. And uh, again, I'm sorry last week uh, we didn't get to your question on air, Bruce. I hope you're listening today. Susie? We have about four minutes left, 651-461-9226. We do have a question about when we have to start paying back those student loans. A lot of people or their children are facing that right now. What advice, what would you tell families that are in that situation right now? Yeah, it's a great question, Susie. We did talk about this on the show, but it was a long time ago. And, you know, shame on us. Now that the date is actually here, after the, the, you know, the, the law happened, we talked about it then, we probably should have done a little refresher. Um, so the first thing is look and see what your options are. I mean, you're, you, I don't think you're gonna be able to avoid paying, but you might be able to restructure, you might be able to go to private institution. There, there, there might be options to reduce the interest rate or to enhance the terms and conditions to make it more palatable. One of the things that, that we do, and again, this is not going to be an answer for everybody listening, but I'm really big on what we call intra-family loans. So let's say that you have parents or even a sibling, or it could even be a friend. 
let's say that you have somebody that has the economic wherewithal to pay that loan for you and you can pay them back and you can set up terms and conditions where the interest rate that you're paying them or, or amortized over a period of time makes it more palatable, more affordable for you, but it's still a good deal for them because maybe they're earning more interest than they can earn you know, in a money market account or a bank CD or a bank account. So maybe if your student loan interest rate is nine and you can get a private loan or an intra-family loan for six and a half or seven, they're making more than they would make at the bank, good deal for them, but lower interest rate for you, and it's more affordable, more palatable. But this is gonna have an economic impact on the entire country, even people that are, that are not you know, paying these loans, because a lot of that money that's now gonna have to go back to paying off student loan debt was going into the economy in the form of consumer spending and buying stuff. So there is going to be some ripple effect there, and I've seen varying degrees of opinion over how big it will be. So that is one of those small negatives that I look at. I started the show talking about that I'm cautiously optimistic about the fourth quarter. I see more positives than negatives. That is one of the negatives, but I don't think it's going to be a huge negative. And again, I still think there's there's more positive things out there. But there again, I don't want to be insensitive to those people that are in that position because I know it's going to be a burden. I understand that. I don't mean to trivialize that. But again, the best advice I can give you is shop around, be creative, see if you can find more palatable way of, of, of paying back that debt. Bruce, we have one minute. Maybe you want to wrap it up. Probably not enough time to get a question, but just to remind people listening, one eight eight six advice or your money at wealthenhancement.com. But in the final minute here, do you want to kind of recap, put a put a bow on it before we end for the week? Yeah, just really quick. It doesn't seem like it because the year went so fast and it's still so unseasonably warm. But we're actually starting the fourth quarter. Before you know it, there'll be trick-or-treaters at your door. Before you know it, you'll be carving a Thanksgiving turkey, and you'll be with family and loved ones during the holiday season. It's a great time of year to review everything, review your investments, review your insurance, review your accounts to make sure you have beneficiaries on them, and they are who you want them to be. (laughs) It's a great time to take care uh, stock of financial inventory. And again, as soon as we know that Social Security cost of living adjustment, we'll have Rhonda White neck on in the next few weeks great have a wonderful week again it's one eight 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 six advice if you have a question or your money at wealth make it a great week